The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we are getting to the bottom of the ever-growing movement of anti-intellectualism. We'll be speaking with David Robson, senior journalist at BBC Future, about mythology, which is the hatred of reason and argument, and how it may be connected to distrust of intellectuals. Then we'll speak with Dr. Bruno Takahashi, Associate Professor of Environmental Journalism and Communication at Michigan State University, about how the way you consume media affects how you feel about scientists and the press and your scientific knowledge. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Anika Hazra. With me is David Robson, Senior Journalist at BBC Future. David, welcome to Science for the People. Thanks for having me. All right. So you have written a blog post on your website about misology. The post is titled Misology, the Hatred of Reason and Argument, uh, which is great because uh, you've explained what misology is right there in the title. So I actually have only heard of this term for the first time very recently, and I'm sure a lot of people have never encountered this term before. So could you explain for us in some detail what misology means? Sure. So um, actually, I only came across the term recently, too. And that was uh, while I was doing research for this book I'm writing, I was reading Plato's Phaedo, which is about Socrates after his trial when he's been condemned for death. And there's this very deep philosophical discussion that they're having. And some of Socrates' followers uh they're kind of becoming confused and upset that their opinions keep on changing during this discussion. And they feel like maybe if their opinion can change so much and if they can be persuaded by one argument and then another, then they start to get distrustful of the idea of rational argument altogether. And that kind of distrust of rational argument of and factual debate, um, that's really what misology is. And, um, uh, and really, this is, uh, uh, I think Socrates said that that was actually one of the worst things that could happen to someone would be if they would develop this distrust of, of argument and rationality and factual knowledge, because it means that they really can't live a, a good life um, if they don't engage with the actual facts that are around them. All right. So what led you to write about this particular topic? So I'm writing this book called The The Intelligence Trap, which is really looking at why even very intelligent, clever people can make stupid mistakes and how to uh, and how to avoid those mistakes. And um, the problem is that even people who should know better often do reject really good evidence. So, for example, there are lots of intelligent people who are climate change deniers, for example, or there's the famous case of Kerry Mullis, who is a, a Nobel Prize winning chemist, but he has, um, or at least he did in the 90s, he rejected the idea that HIV was causing AIDS, even though there was really abundant evidence at that point that the two were linked. And so I was kind of wondering, why is it that people would would reject um, something that's really plainly in front of them in which, you know, the consensus, the scientific consensus is there, why would someone intelligent still just reject all of that knowledge? And did you find an answer? I did. So there's lots of good reasons why uh, this could be. But one element that I find very interesting is this idea of, it's called earned dogmatism. And it's this idea that once you have developed an expertise in one area, 
and you you kind of feel that you're very knowledgeable that kind of creates this really closed-minded attitude and that can kind of seep into other domains as well so you start to think you know best about everything and you rely more on your kind of intuitive responses your intuitive ideas rather than listening to that kind of other evidence and to me that seems like an example of misology because it's almost like you're so sure of your own feelings that then you're not really listening to to kind of what the other experts are actually saying so what about the people who aren't necessarily experts or not necessarily considered to be highly intelligent why would those kind of people reject facts well they they're uh, Lots of other reasons why that could be. I mean, one is the idea of um, cognitive miserliness. So this can actually afflict people of any level of intelligence. Um, so it could affect someone with a low IQ or a high IQ of low knowledge or high knowledge. Uh, and this is just the idea that we tend to prefer things that just make a lot of fluent, uh, make a lot of kind of intuitive sense, but we don't really want to think about the kind of reasons why that might be or to explore the kind of counter arguments. Because if we have to think too much about something, we kind of feel that that's too difficult. Maybe we're just a bit lazy. Uh, or it could just be this idea that kind of if you have to think a lot, then something has to be wrong. We do have a bias where we prefer um, I mean, it sounds crazy, but we really do have this kind of well-known bias that we prefer and prefer uh, facts and statements that are fluent, cognitively fluent, they're easy to process. And we distrust things that take too much thought because we, we really feel that that in itself is somehow a sign that something must be wrong. And so I think that can explain why people of all levels of intelligence sometimes reject facts that don't immediately fit their worldview because it takes too much thinking and they're distrustful of something that takes too much thinking. Well, that really is an issue because it, how can you ever learn anything new if you're afraid to think too much about anything? Right. And that's, I mean, that's the kind of other side of the coin. So I haven't, in, within my book, I haven't just looked at kind of why people make these stupid mistakes but I've also looked at the converse and why some people do seem to form a more rational worldview and they do seem to be more open to to these new ideas and one of those traits that can really protect you from all of these mistakes is curiosity so intellectual curiosity and you don't have to have a high IQ to be very curious, but the evidence shows that whatever your IQ, your curiosity can really predict how likely you are to form um, a rational opinion of, say, climate change or fracking or, um, I don't know, the legalization of drugs. And it's because if you're curious, you're not threatened by something that needs more thought and more research. You actually relish that opportunity to find something new. And if it does disagree with your previous worldview, that doesn't have to kind of question your own uh, kind of feelings of expertise because it's actually it's just an opportunity to, to kind of to be intrigued, to be interested. Okay, so I want to get into a quote from your blog post. This is a direct quote from your blog post. Right. We may sometimes find that our cherished beliefs were baseless without evidence. This is an ine inevitable consequence of thinking and learning. The rational behavior would be to update our knowledge and learn from our mistakes. But the misologist right. instead begins to distrust everything, even the true and verifiable facts that appear before his eyes. So distrust can only be bred in a misologist if their trust has been bro broken more than once before. 
So my question for you is, yeah. is a misologist really to blame if they've recognized a pattern and learned to follow it? Uh, so that's a really good point. And um, so let me just think about that for a while, because I don't feel that misology ever should be a rational approach to life. But um, but maybe it is understandable. I mean, it's the same with like, yeah. a, you know, a, a misanthrope, someone who hates other people. This is a person who's had bad experience, right. who's trusted multiple people throughout their lifetime. And that trust was broken over and over and over again. So, you know, that's a pattern. And typically you learn from the patterns you recognize in your life. So, um, yeah. you know, um, you know, obviously this person maybe doesn't have the critical thinking skills to judge a person's character to yeah. begin with. But, you know, how do you get out of that habit of trying to learn about people and about arguments based on the patterns that you've experienced? Uh, So that's you've raised a really good point there. And so I guess throughout my book, I hope I'm not too judgmental of people who do fall into these patterns, because like you say, maybe it is a kind of reasonable expected behavior that if you your fingers have been burnt then you're kind of extra cautious the next time um and i I think maybe one of the problems in modern society is that so say for example if there is currently a greater distrust of scientists and journalists um now uh, which actually you know lots of surveys do show is true so this is a phenomenon um now my problem is that i think the errors that say journalists or scientists have made have been exaggerated by some parties and they've been really brought to the forefront so they're very salient they're very easy to remember and what's easy to forget actually is the vast amount of good that journalism and uh, science has done for people and I, I think like maybe one of the problems here is that people do lose sight of the fact that, you know, without science, we would have a vastly reduced life expectancy. You know, we would still have to be terrified of infectious diseases, which now are really not a big threat for most people in the Western world. Um, that, you know, cancer, which was uh, once a, a kind of almost certain uh, death sentence, you know, now like uh, the kind of life expectancy, even if you have cancer, is is vastly increased. These advances, actually, I think, because they're kind of incremental over a, a long period, so they're very significant over a long period, but maybe not immediately visible and easy to notice that progress are maybe lost. And so if people only remember some of the kind of highly documented cases where an expert has made a big error, for example, before the financial crash of the forecast didn't predict the crash, then maybe um, if those are too salient, then maybe that is what brings about misology. And maybe one of the ways to combat that would be to to try to open your mind a little to all of that other progress that has been achieved. Yeah, you're right. Among the different groups of experts, I personally feel like the scientific community has been hit especially hard by this wave of distrust among the public in the last few years. Why do you right. think that is the case for scientists specifically? Yeah, I mean, that's a difficult question because, to be honest, I can't think of any one particular scandal that has really, that should have produced the distrust in um, scientists. But I wonder if there's just been, there has been this kind of um, almost a concerted attempt at misinformation um, on some fronts. So, for example, with uh, climate change, for example, there are some lobby groups who I think are spreading 
kind of distrust about the science there. Same with anti-vaccination campaigners. I think, you know, some groups are um, deliberately, I think, spreading mistrust about the scientific evidence. And I just wonder if that has kind of reached a kind of critical point almost. And with social media, with Facebook and Twitter, it becomes a lot easier for that kind of message to, to spread far and wide. Do you think the issue comes down to basically just a lack of scientific literacy among the public? I do, actually. So I've also written a little bit about um, tests that are specifically of um, scientific literacy and also numeracy. And uh, it's called the Berlin Numeracy Test. And it's very simple. You could even search for it online and you can try it for yourself. But actually, you know, it's really shocking how few even very educated people really struggle to interpret basic statistics, um, basic kind of health information or, or kind of uh, information about risks concerning, for example, climate change or, or even just the weather, that really we, we do lack this kind of basic understanding that would help us to engage with the information that's given to us. And I think if you can engage with a news story, uh, you can think critically about it, then that maybe does allow you to realize when you should be a bit more skeptical and when you should be a bit more trusting. And that in itself could maybe build a greater trust because you would begin to see all of the instances where where maybe your trust is well-founded and that actually the scientific evidence really does back up the claims that are being made. Okay, well, I have this idea that the scientific community all actually has a hand in the lack of scientific liter- literacy among the public and uh, mm. that... You know how the results of research is disseminated uh, in scientific journals. And who has access to these journals? Other scientists. Um, There are some open access journals that the public uh, can access if they want to. But, you know, I think most people just don't know these journals exist. They don't know how to learn about uh, new discoveries or new research outside of the news. What do you think about that? I think that's a really good point. And, I mean, personally, I do feel that if, you know, scientists are receiving public money, they do have a responsibility to communicate their research with the public. And I certainly agree one aspect of that is that whether those papers that they're publishing are accessible to the public. But also as a science journalist, I know maybe lots of people would feel daunted about reading a scientific journal, but they would really like to kind of read a popular science article about a subject. You know, there is a genuine curiosity, I think, when things were explained clearly and accurately, but in a compelling way. You know, people really love science and, and they want to engage with it, even if they didn't enjoy science at school. So I, I think it is really important that scientists do actively try to increase that engagement and they actively try to, to kind of communicate what they're doing. How can they do that? Well, you know, I mean, sadly, sometimes as a journalist, you know, I do talk to scientists and they really, you know, they don't want kind of journalistic articles to be written about their work even. And that kind of breaks my heart that they, maybe they've had their fingers burned and they, you know, are worried that the article isn't going to be responsibly, to responsibly portray their work. Um but I, I still feel like maybe it is their responsibility because they are kind of, they have the capacity to change people's worldviews and to really do a lot of good. You know, it's not just a question of understanding a particular paper here. It's about 
helping people, like you said, to kind of increase their scientific literacy and to understand that there is a scientific way of looking at the world that could inform your politics and, and all of these other decisions. Um, so I do think maybe just uh, trying to engage more with uh, kind of public outreach in whatever way possible, whether it's giving uh, kind of uh, doing public speaking, whether it's writing article, popular articles yourself. I mean, there are so many good outlets now, such as The Conversation, that allow scientists to present their own research. And I think all of that can really be of a huge benefit to increasing the public uh, understanding of science. Okay. So uh, this distrust of scientists and other academics or experts can be described as anti-intellectualism. Uh, right. So how is anti-intellectualism different from mythology? Okay. I mean, I think they are very closely related, but I would say maybe anti-intellectualism is, uh, maybe, uh, mythology is more specifically the distrust of kind of facts and arguments. And maybe anti-intellectualism is more this fear of this kind of intellectual elite and this idea that, um, you know, there are some people who are somehow in the know and you kind of distrust them because they're kind of making these claims um so it's more of a distrust maybe of the person rather than the argument um and again it's almost that that feeling that if you if uh you have to try hard to understand that person's point of view then maybe they're not worth listening to at all but you think there is a relationship between these two things I do, actually, because I think like part of the, um, kind of like I just said, but, um, that I think part of the distrust of kind of intellectual life is this kind of fear that, um, that you're going to have to change your worldview in some way and change your opinions. And it's this kind of, you're closing your mind to something that's, uh, you're, you're kind of closing your mind to new information. And so I think that is at the heart of both anti-intellectualism and mythology. Okay, so we've talked about experts or particular specific individuals, uh, but I'd like to know, why do people find it easier not to trust an entire institution or organization like the government? Hmm, uh, so why did they find it easier not to trust like the organization rather than, say, engaging with, with the Just information? Just right off an entire, yeah. you know, institution, company, organization, NGO, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I really think that comes from, uh, I mean, actually, I think there's good sign, uh, kind of psychological evidence showing that this is particularly true of um, people who already feel quite vulnerable. They might be vulnerable kind of economically and socially. And that kind of breeds this kind of conspiracy mindset in a way uh, maybe because it's slightly tempting if you're in an unfortunate situation yourself to uh, to try to look for the kind of outside factors that might be kind of influencing your uh, your own situation and so I, I feel like maybe there's an element of that with this distrust of say the government or an NGO you kind of want to feel that there's this kind of alien body out there that could possibly be doing some shady dealings, maybe engaged in, in something that you're not quite certain of, but you feel like maybe that is having a broader impact on the world around you. And that breeds distrust. So there's definitely good psychological evidence showing that that's true of, say, political and even medical 
uh, conspiracy theories. So the idea, for example, that um, you know pharmaceutical companies are kind of actively hiding good cancer drugs so that um, because they know they can make more money from less effective drugs that would have to be used for, for a longer period of time. Um, so I think that's definitely one element. I think it's also the case that if you don't understand what's going on, it can just feel very daunting to kind of look at that really complex body. And so you just kind of, you, your knee-jerk reaction is to think, well, there must be something dodgy going on there. So then how do you develop the expertise you need to be able to critically judge arguments or experts or institutions without relying on the authority of an expert, of the person who's delivering right. those arguments? Yeah, I mean, that's a great point, because actually, so my own point of view is that you should, I feel like if someone is very knowledgeable, and they have their credentials, that should play a part in whether you trust them or not. But you should, you should be thinking about the kind of their argument itself critically as well. You can't just base all of your argument, all of your kind of beliefs on the trust of other people's credentials, you need to really look for yourself at kind of what's what they're saying and how that matches up. Um, so, I mean, it's a tough one. I do think just uh, like we discussed before, just generally improving your scientific literacy, your scientific knowledge can help. But that by itself isn't enough, actually, because there are some people who, uh, as I've mentioned, who are very knowledgeable and intelligent, but they still kind of have this distrust, this kind of blind spot in certain areas. Um, but there has been some really fascinating research on it's called cognitive inoculations. And this is specifically to combat the kind of misinformation that is being spread by anti-vaccination campaigners or climate change denialists. And so this, uh, broadly speaking, it kind of presents some of the logical fallacies that those groups would use to try to um, to kind of pull the wool over your eyes and to, to kind of create this illusion of evidence or even the illusion of doubt about the actual verified evidence. Um, and learning those kinds of logical fallacies um, learning how to uh, kind of think about them using basic critical thinking skills. So kind of, uh, I mean, some of the examples would be to kind of to be wary, for example, of um, correla uh, correlation studies and to look for what the underlying causation could be. So to look for alternative explanations. Um, so these kind of inoculation courses, as, as they've been called, uh, kind of look at all of those kinds of things. They they look at the logical fallacies and the critical thinking skills. They teach people those skills. And then once people have seen these examples, they've kind of had really concrete examples of, of misinformation. They are much better at being able to spot it in the future. So those studies to me are very positive. They make me feel very optimistic because it shows that you really can teach people to think more critically for themselves so that they will accept the scientific consensus, they will accept the the kind of correct information as we see it now, and they'll reject the misinformation. Do you think someone needs to have a, a university-level education to be able to develop these critical thinking skills? I'm just asking because I wonder what kind of person would take these inoculation courses. Right. No, I mean, absolutely not. I really think, actually, these are some of the most basic skills that we really should have been taught at school. But I, um, I, from my research for my book, my impression is that most schools really aren't good at teaching critical thinking. Um, in fact, there have been studies showing that even across a university course, a three-year degree, critical thinking skills basically stay 
um, exactly where they were. They don't increase at all. Um, and these are very base, these are actually very basic skills. You know, you don't need to be hugely intelligent or knowledgeable to, to know them. And I think they can be learned fairly quickly. You just need to put in a little bit of effort and to remember to use them in the future. I mean, the good thing is there are lots of online courses that do provide those, um, kind of basics for you. Um, you could also read, for example, the works of Carl Sagan. Um, so he came up with this kind of baloney detection kit. <laughs> um, and you know, that is all across the web that you can, um, you can look up and you can find his kind of step by step guide and just, you know, reading that kind of thing and, and, making the effort to then apply that can really make a huge difference. You've mentioned your book a few times now, so I'll just uh, let our audience know that you have written a book uh, called The Intelligence Trap, Why Smart People Make Stupid Mistakes and How to Avoid Them, and it's coming out in 2019. Uh, So in this book, you explore evidence-based wisdom, the opposite of mythology. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? Right, yeah. So, I mean, basically, evidence-based wisdom tries to look at all of these other skills that um, don't automatically come with intelligence and they don't automatically come with kind of higher education. Um, And so some of those are the things that we've already been talking about. So, for example, cultivating your curiosity, developing a more open-minded mindset so that you don't just accept the kind of easiest answer to a, a question, um, but you also try to really explore the alternative explanations. You really try to challenge yourself. You interrogate your own opinions. Um, that also comes with this cognitive inoculation. So being able to spot when you might be being misled and to, to again, to try to look for what the alternative explanations might be beyond the message that's kind of more simply conveyed in the article that you're reading. Um, it also looks, for example, at the way companies could apply this in their own um, kind of organizations, because one of the big findings has been that certain corporate cultures can kind of actually discourage critical thinking amongst um, the organization's employees. And there could be some clever ways that organizations can subtly change their kind of message to their employees to, to encourage a more critical, uh, a wiser kind of mindset. So I'm curious to know, um, why doesn't intelligence actually correlate with rationality? Right. I mean, yeah, there's really good uh, research showing that it doesn't correlate very well at all. Um, you know, being more intelligent, having a higher IQ can be an advantage in that it does help you to develop those kind of statistical or numerical skills. So there is a small correlation there, but there are still plenty of people who are very intelligent who are not very rational, according to all of these kind of um, scientific measures of rationality and cognitive bias. Um, and so the reasons, you know, it can be the cognitive miserliness, that kind of lazy thinking that we discussed earlier. So just because people have the kind of raw brain power doesn't actually mean they're going to use it. It's a bit like you might have been given a really fast car for your birthday, It doesn't mean that you're going to be able to drive it very effectively. You might just kind of drive it into a ditch or off a cliff, or maybe you just don't actually drive it at all because you have no inclination. Um, So that's kind of a parallel that I see with intelligence. It's like it could be useful if you have these other kind of traits that allow you to use your intelligence well. But if you don't, um, your intelligence could be not very useful, or it could even be damaging if you actually use it to kind of justify uh, wrong opinions and beliefs. 
So how do you suggest that we go about developing a greater intellectual humility? Right. Uh, great question, because it's probably quite a difficult um, uh, thing to do in that I think that maybe the most intellectually arrogant people may well think they're the most humble as well. Um, you see that quite a lot within these um kind of self-reported scientific measures that sometimes it's the people who are the least um, humble or, you know, who have the biggest problem who find it hardest to see. Um, but uh, one, one kind of, uh, one kind of fairly robust finding in the research has shown that people are more intellectually humble about a subject when they manage to disconnect that topic and their beliefs from their personal identity. Uh, which maybe is easier said than done. But for example, um, climate change denialism is much more common amongst uh, people who are more right-wing and capitalist in their politics. Um, but actually, if you think about it logically, there's no real reason why the two show together. You know, the facts of what they are, it doesn't have to be... Um, it doesn't have to be the case that, uh, glo uh, that global warming is a political issue. Learning to try to separate those two things could actually be very, uh, very useful for developing the kind of intellectual humility because that allows you to question and doubt yourself without kind of causing your whole sense of self to crumble around that one belief. You can, you can realize you're still the same person. You're still a smart person. You're still an expert in other areas. But just because you've changed your opinion in this one area, it doesn't have to kind of question all of that other stuff about yourself. Well, I am really excited to read your book. Uh, so can you let our audience know when exactly it will be available and where we can get it? Absolutely. So it's being published in the UK in March 2019, uh, but I'm sure that would be available in the US too. But the US version, which will be published by WW Norton, um, and that's also available in Canada, that will be uh, coming out in August 2019. All right, great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. That was David Robson, senior journalist at BBC Future. He has a book coming out in 2019 called The Intelligence Trap, Why Smart People Make Stupid Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. Up next, we have Dr. Bruno Takahashi, Associate Professor of Environmental Journalism and Communication at Michigan State University. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. With me now is Dr. Bruno Takahashi. Associate Professor of Environmental Journalism and Communication at Michigan State University. Bruno, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you, Anika. All right, so now we've moved on to the segment of the episode that's about anti-intellectualism, and you co-authored a paper that was published a few years ago in the journal Public Understanding of Science. The paper is titled Media Sources, Credibility, and Public Perception of Science, learning about how people learn about science. So tell us a little bit about this paper and why you wanted to write it. Uh, part of my interest in this topic um, is that 
there has been uh, quite a robust body of research in the last few years looking at science communication, uh, mostly um, criticizing the, the traditional model of communication, which we call the deficit model, that basically suggests that um, people people in general, audiences in general, will make a, a right decision or will agree with the scientific community once they receive um, the appropriate information that they need. So they are illuminated and lighted by this scientific information, uh, and therefore they'll, they'll, they'll make the right decision, right? So um, in this paper, we wanted to e- explain and try to understand in a little, more, little bit more detail how do people make um, uh, assumptions about science and how they learn about science based on, uh, first, the media that they consume, and second, how much they, they trust uh, that media and how much they trust uh, scientists who produce um, the science that they're being exposed to, because uh, part of what we argue in the paper is that uh, scientific understanding and scientific knowledge doesn't just happen because uh, a scientist happens to tell uh, an audience um, what research is telling them. Uh, there are a lot of different intervening factors uh, at the individual and so- societal level that that can lead to understanding or can lead to misunderstanding of science. So which we're trying to somehow um, challenge this idea that that either people are, are just going to get it uh, once they get the information uh, uh, or that people are really uh, not prepared to understand scientific information. But that it's a little bit more complicated, and that there are many motivations and many um, again, factors um, within individuals, like political ideology or, or their media consumption, or or again their, their level of trust in certain sources that that explain in, in more um, uh, more nuanced way how people learn about science. So, what kind of role did you expect media consumption to have on whether a person understands or misunderstands scientific information? Uh, things have changed considerably certainly uh, in the last few decades with with the, the um, with online media with social media and most of the models in in science communication or in, in communication research in general were developed prior to to online and social media so so what we're seeing um, in the last decade or so uh, is that people learn about uh, not only science but different topics from um, uh, a pretty sophisticated diet of, of media um, sources. So um, no longer is a case where people just refer one or two sources of information uh, for, for a scientific topic. But now we get information from our friends, from um, a newspaper, from television, but also from uh, maybe a scientist blog or or a radio talk show. So, so there's, there are, there are a lot more sources of information. It is also true that people still, um, follow those sources that align with their uh, preconceived beliefs and their, uh, ideology. But, but the number of sources has certainly changed, um, in the last few years. So, so it, it has certainly become more complicated to understand, um, how media use, uh, very broadly defined, uh, um, has an effect on, on scientific knowledge. Well, even considering the number of sources a person might look for, why might it be risky for someone to rely on the internet to make sense of scientific ideas or just complicated ideas? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I teach in the School of Journalism and, and we tell our students that this is a, the best time to be a journalist and the most important uh, time to be a journalist because 
um, I mean, the the internet certainly has um, opened up uh, these floodgates, um, and, and it's difficult for most people to discern between uh, credible and non credible sources of information. Uh, and the role of um, of journalists nowadays is again more important than ever because they are they are they are the ones who should be producing information that that is uh, fair, accurate, and, and objective. Uh, but but it also takes uh, science and media literacy for um, audience members to to understand that information. So we're still working through that process of how do we make um, audience members become more more literate um, in terms of uh, consuming media, uh, but also how do we train our journalists to to step step up a notch and and, and produce information that it's uh, even of higher quality than ever. And I would say that science journalism overall, the quality of of those. Um, uh, general traditional uh, news sources, but also the specialized science sources, uh, it's, it's it's better than ever. But why do you think scientific literacy is still so low in the U.S.? Well, uh, to to be honest, scientific literacy hasn't changed that much uh, in the U.S. Uh, in the last several decades. If you look at the at the data that the General Social Survey uh, at the University University of Chicago produces every year, uh, it's Science literacy hasn't changed that much. What what has changed is um, the level of support for for certain type of uh, technologies or, or or certain type of policies related to science. Uh, attitudes have uh, have changed uh, depending on the issue that you see, but literacy overall has remained somewhat stable, uh, which is why it's it's so hard to to change. I mean, we've been trying for a very long time mm-hmm. to change uh, uh, to improve science literacy, uh, but but it has really change much. Um, now, I, I'm not an expert in the area of, of science education, uh, and I, I, I would assume that that's where you would start at the very basic levels of, of education, um, elementary and uh, um, middle school, so K, K through 12. Um, so, I mean, I, I know that there's a lot of work being done in that area, a lot of people working and doing research in that area. Uh, I would say that's where we would start, but, but the evidence suggests that it, has, it hasn't changed much in the last few decades. So in your paper, you say that knowledge, attitude, and trust all work together to influence the public's understanding of science. So how are all three of these things different from each other, and how do they work together? So um, this the concept of trust, um, It's we call trust as a, a multidimensional concept. It, it, it includes a wide range of subcomponents uh so you can trust you can trust information but you uh because you trust the source of the information or you might distrust information because just because of the source or or you might you might trust the source but you still distrust information because information that you are receiving is uh contrary to to your own beliefs on that on a particular topic so it's very very complex um to understand that this concept of trust now for this particular paper we were limited on on the the way that the questions were asked uh in the original survey um so so we look at just uh, trust or confidence in in news media in general in the press uh which is something that has certainly declined that 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 is a lot there's a lot of evidence that they show that um trust on on, on, on the press has decreased decreased considerably uh so we wanted to understand how what's the relationship between again certain consuming certain media sources and that level of confidence in the in the press and how that predicts um scientific knowledge so if you are um 
if you depending on what media source you you consume so let's say it's uh, it's uh, it's internet online sources as as your uh, primary source of information um, your level of confidence in the in the press or the traditional media it tends to be lower so there's uh, kind of a negative relationship between online um, news consumption and confidence in the press uh, as opposed to using a traditional news source right I mean, and which is intuitive kind of makes sense uh, so for those folks that use internet the, the internet they they trust the uh, the traditional media less, and that that level of trust predicts lower lower levels of scientific knowledge. So, um, so, so we, so in other words, we want people to be able to, regardless of what source of information they use, to trust uh, traditional news media, which in turn can can influence their level of, of scientific knowledge. People would be more willing to to accept the information about science that they're receiving because they trust that source. Uh, and the same happens with perceptions of scientists. And, and uh, so, if, if you are, uh, if you trust scientists um, uh, more, you you we would we predicted that that would that should um, be related to how much people know about science. But but what we, what we actually found was a, a reverse relationship. So people who have a higher um, levels of trust in sci- in scientists tend to have lower levels of, of of science knowledge, which was kind of unexpected. Uh, but what we also found was that uh, perceptions of, of, of scientists um, are influenced in a way, but by, by how much do we, um, where, how much we uh, trust the scientific process itself. So healthy skepticism was uh, a positive predictor of, of scientific knowledge. So knowing more about the scientific process, it's, it's a good thing. You become more skeptical, which is not a bad thing. Being skeptical in science is actually something that drives science. Um, so, so we we want people to be somewhat skeptical of science, science itself, but that that they trust the process, that they trust the the fact that scientists are are operating under certain circumstances and using certain tools that allow them to produce um, information and, and and results that are meaningful and that are uh, trustworthy. So take me through the different types of methods you used in the study to get an understanding of what influences a person's scientific knowledge. Uh, so we, we use secondary data for this study. Actually, as I mentioned, um, I mentioned the general social survey uh, a few minutes ago. And that's the data we used. Um, I can't remember, I think it's a 2015 data set from the general social survey. Uh, so this is a national representative sample of, of U.S. Um, residents. Um I can't remember the, the sample size at this point, but what we 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 did is we we use a a path analysis to um, look at the relationships between uh, the variables, uh, the independent variables and dependent variables. So so we look at um, I mean we control for things like uh, demographics, like age, gender, and and education, uh, and we we look at direct relationships between um, all all of these variables. So interest in science, media use. And the levels of trust, um, so the regular relationships with uh, scientific knowledge, but but we also look at uh, mediated relationships between between the variables. So again, whether um, the the use of a media source um, predicts scientific knowledge uh, through the the level of trust in in the press or the perceptions of scientists. Um, so yeah, so that that in a nutshell uh, is the the method that we used. So what kind of relationship do you think age, gender, and education um, have with having an interest in science? 
um, our study is consistent with with many studies um, in science communication show that higher education uh, is positively related to interest in science. So older folks, I mean, more educated folks, so higher degrees, um, graduate degrees tend to be uh, correlated with interest in science. Um, we also see that uh, older people are more interested in science, so the older the individual is, um, the higher the interest of, in science, uh, which again, that's, that's all consistent with, with, um, research in this area. Uh, males tend to be more interested in, in science than females, um, again, which is consistent with most of the, of the research. So do you think the type of media source, say traditional media versus just using the internet could affect, uh, the accuracy of information that people can receive if they were to choose one or the other? Uh, it's it's possible. It's possible. It, it, it depends on the media. When you talk about mainstream media, um, it, it depends on which media um, you are being exposed to. So uh, the research in, in communication um, shows that uh, consuming television has a different type of effect than, than reading the newspaper. Uh, so so for example, for individuals with um, for individuals with high education. Consuming um, science, news in general, not only science, but it applies to all types of news. Consuming news uh, from TV for people with higher education doesn't make a lot of difference, uh, but it does help people with lower education. So, so the gap between uh, the gap in knowledge between um, between those who with higher education and low education uh, tends to to close where they're where they are exposed to television, but it. The contrary happens when they're exposed to newspapers. Uh, so, because newspapers just require a higher cognitive um, level to understand uh, the information, so the gap between the, those who already have some knowledge and those who have limited knowledge tends to widen. So, people with more, more knowledge get more out of a newspaper than people with uh, lower levels of knowledge. So, so there's a lot of nuances in, in terms of what traditional media you're exposed to. Now, when you go to online news, uh, it gets even more complicated because, um, again, the, the, the availability of information is just so, so vast. It's huge that it's hard to, it's hard to measure exactly what is a particular media diet of, of any, any given individual, right? So I could, I could be reading, uh, both the New York Times, uh, Fox News Online, uh, NPR, but also I'm reading news uh, sources, uh, back in, back in my home country in Peru. Uh, I might be reading specialized news, um, uh, environmental news like Inside Climate News. Uh, so it's very, it's a very unique media diet as compared to what you might be uh, consuming or, or, or my colleagues or my friends might be consuming. Uh, there, there are certain patterns that we do identify again in terms of the ideological leanings of the, of the news sources, but, but each, each individual will have a particular uh, media diet. So, so we're exposed to a very unique reality. So we, we, we don't, we're not longer exposed to the same reality, uh, from back when, um, we only have a few newspapers and a few networks that, that presented us what was going on around the world. Now we are each exposed to something kind of unique. So, so it's really difficult to, to measure those, those, uh, those levels of exposure and to really determine, um, how how those how those how that media consumption is affecting people's understanding of science or their or the beliefs or their attitudes. I mean, there's plenty of research, but it's it, it, it's all uh, both issue dependent and, and again depending on on the the media diet of the individuals. Well, one factor you uh, focused on in this study is a pre-existing interest in science. 
So as well as a, a po- you looked at positive or negative perception of both scientists and journalists. Uh, uh-huh. my, my question is, how can someone become interested in science in the first place? Oh, that's, that's a good question. Um, so again, that, that's something I think that maybe somebody in science education would be better mm-hmm. posed uh, in, you know, to answer. But uh, I'll, I'll try to comment on that in that um, we're, we're born into this world being curious, right? We're, we're basically scientists when we, we are born. Uh, when we're kids, we, we, we have that natural curiosity to try to understand how the world works. That's why we, as toddlers and little kids, we put forks inside of, um, electric outlets, right? We just want to know what's going to happen. Uh, and we put things in our mouths because we want to know how they taste or what will happen, right? So, so we're naturally inclined, uh, to, uh, to being curious. And, and that's what drives, uh, science, right? This, this, uh, sense of curiosity, of wonder, of trying to understand what's, um, how the world works. Now, as we grow older, we are socialized into a system that in many cases prevents us from being curious. And, and tries to bound our, our actions by telling us these things are, these things you can do, these things you can't do, right? And, and, and we need those boundaries, absolutely. But, but in many cases, that takes away our, our, our sense of curiosity and exploration. Uh, for some people, it never goes away. And those are, again, those pe- people who pursue careers in science. Uh, but I think that in part of the, part of the issues that we are, we're telling we're telling our kids not to not to explore and not to not to uh, take risks uh, because we're worried that that they make it hurt, uh, which is why we see has been uh, our risk uh, people are being overly risk averse uh, in in even the the simplest things in life. Um, now I think I'm talking like a parent right now, <laughs> but but I think that there's a little bit of that that it's driving the. Um, Maybe that, that lack of curiosity. I mean, there, there's still a lot of people who are interested in science, of course. Um, I mean, and I, I can think of, uh, off of the top of my head, what, what are the percentages of individuals who go into careers in, in, in STEM? Uh, but we, what we do know is that, that it's different depending on, on, on who you are in terms of your, um, race or ethnicity or your gender or your, um, um, your, your, your upbringing, your socioeconomic status. So for some people, the opportunities are more readily available than for, for people with, uh, with certain characteristics, which is something that I know that, um, people in the, in, in science education are, are, are working on. So I want to actually get back to your, your study. So, um, you already touched on a little bit on some of the results, but I'd like to ask you, um, what you think the most interesting results of your study were. Huh. That's a good question. <laughs> I mean, I have some ideas, um, but I thought I'd let you. I'd let you speak first. Well, I, I mean, so again, I think that the the main the main takeaway is that, especially for for people doing science communication, uh, whether they are scientists or whether they are science museums, uh, I think it, it it provides a little bit more uh, nuance to the idea that that if people don't learn about science after they're being exposed to it. It's not because they don't get it, they're stupid, or that they don't care. It's it's a lot more complicated uh, than that. So, it's it's there are structural factors that lead to to people's interest or or knowledge about science, and those include, again, as I mentioned, societal perceptions of the role of the press in the in, in our societies and the role of science in our society. Uh, I mean, this this interview uh, is about anti anti intellectualism. 
Uh, and it's, it's, I think I would agree that there is a, a sense of, of anti-intellectualism in, in North America. I, I, I won't say that it's, that the evidence, it's clear that, that people reject science, uh, because again, uh, I think that there is, there's still not a lot of clarity on that topic, but there's a sense that something is going on. Like we hear it from our, our uh, policymakers, from the politicians. Uh, we hear from from various different sources that I mean, the role of science uh, is being challenged. Uh, so, so, so I think that will be the the main takeaway. That if you are interested in, if you're a science communicator, interested in in getting people to learn about science, uh, it's not just about uh, feeding people facts and expecting them to to just get it uh you, you have to understand where people are coming from so how do you think the results of your study can help explain anti-intellectualism and why this attitude has been targeted at scientists and journalists in particular um i, I think it's a part, part of it's a reflection of of distrust on institutions more generally um i mean which is um which is not uh, which is not unexpected, really. Uh, but I think that we have to think about uh, the issue of anti-intellectualism not only from the pers- from the perspective of of the general public as being the culprits of, of this or or specific policymakers. Well, maybe in some cases there are some specific individuals, but but we have to look at it also from the perspective of what role have uh, has have scientists played in. In, in feeding this sense of anti-intellectualism, uh, and again, this 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 fits with a lot, a lot of the research that uh, many of my colleagues um, conduct in science communication uh, that show that the ways in which scientists and people in science talk to the public and communicate about their science or their findings um, to the general public is is probably not the best. Uh, that there are a lot of ways to communicate science uh, by being respectful and not being a jerk uh, that that can lead to to dialogue I mean so we're those who ask um, if you're talking about communication communication you need at least two two, two individuals to 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 have actual a process of communication um, and, and you cannot yet expect because you're you you're doing research in an area and you're you you have the knowledge on topic that that you can just uh, talk to people any way you want to be condescending because uh, that's not going to lead to dialogue. So so I, I I worry a little bit about um, our focus on anti-intellectualism uh, solely on audiences and, and lab- I mean again this is all about the deficit model right or challenging the deficit model. Uh, think about people as, as as empty vessels or being dumb and, and not getting it. Um, so we got we gotta we gotta meet people. Uh, where they are, uh, and be able to engage them in in the conversation. So one of the most interesting results I found from your study um, is that people, so I think the result was that people who are interested in science will use the internet to learn more about it, but then from using the internet, they'll develop that negative perception. Okay, right. So I think that part of it is that, so yes, in you're interested in science. You're interested in science. You will go and seek more information. You will learn more about the um, whatever science topic you are. But maybe because again, the internet is this kind of wild west of information, your actual scientific knowledge might decrease because you are being exposed to information that is inaccurate. Um, now, the way we measure scientific knowledge is just with a very basic scale. Um, 
asking basic questions about science. Um, so I mean, we we are careful in how we interpret the results because there there's always a possibility that the the measuring um, instrument um, is it's not the the best for this particular model. But 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 we speculate is that is that it's possible that that exposure to 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 internet sources, if they are not accurate, might lead to to a de- not a decline, but at least not an increase in scientific knowledge. So you were saying before that um, scientists haven't been doing a very good job uh, with communicating to the public about their research because you know some scientists tend to be condescending and act like jerks. Uh, so what do you think scientists can do to kind of help turn this tide of anti-intellectualism around and gain the trust of the public? So there's the, the research in, in science communication. Um, now it's focusing on, on, on a couple of different things. So we we first started focusing on on basic skills, right? So h- how to communicate, like how to how to make a presentation, how to how to talk to a reporter, how to um, how to conduct a, a a workshop, or how to write a blog post, how to create a social media page, right? So those are those are skills. Those are technical skills. Uh, and, and, and that's, that's good. You know, scientists need to understand that getting rid of, of their jargon in their public communication is, it's, it's something that they have to do. There's, there's no way around it. Otherwise, people are not going to understand what they're saying. So, so, but, but that's just part of it, right? So, I mean, being, being good communicators is part of it. But, but the second uh, aspect that I think it's important to keep in mind, and it's an area that, that, that some of us are working on, uh, is to, it's to look at, uh, communication goals. So, what is it that we want to achieve with the with our with our communication, right? So, what what are the end goals for our communication? And, and you mentioned one of them is to, is to gain trust, okay? Um, but there are others such as um, other goals such as um, defending science, okay? Uh, there's a goal of uh, influencing policy. Uh, there's a, a goal of um, Increasing uh, levels of interest in science, so getting more maybe minorities uh, into STEM careers. So, so those are just some examples of, of potential goals for the communication uh, that 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 uh, scientists engage in. So, so it has to be, in other words, strategic. It has to be strategic communication. Communication just for the sake of communication, um, not always works. So, we scientists need to need to be able to define what is it that they want to achieve. Uh, and then use those skills that they might have learned in a, at a workshop or from their colleagues and, and put those to practice with the end goal in sight. Uh, otherwise, again, it's, it might, but it might work, but it might not. So, um, it's important to keep in mind strategic goals. All right. Bruno, thank you so much. Thank you, uh, Anika. If you want to learn more about David Robson or Bruno Takahashi, you can check out their links and social media on our website at www.scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. 
You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 